Welcome to episode 46 of the Listening Brain Podcast. Welcome to the Listening Brain. I'm your host, Todd Houston. In this podcast, we explore childhood hearing loss through the lives of the parents and families who are on this journey and the professionals who serve them. Well, unless you've been living under a rock, you probably already know who I'm going to interview next. And she needs really no introduction if you are a listening and spoken language professional. She is someone that I have admired and looked up to and sought her counsel on many occasions. And I am just thrilled that Carol Flexier is joining me for this episode. Carol received her doctorate in audiology from Kent State University in 1982. She's a distinguished professor emeritus of audiology at the University of Akron. And she's an international lecturer in pediatric and educational audiology and author of more than 155 publications, including 17 books. Dr. Flexer is a past president of the Educational Audiology Association, the American Academy of Audiology, and the A.G. Bell Academy for Listening and Spoken Language. It is my humble and distinct pleasure to welcome Carol to the podcast. Well, Carol, welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the podcast, and we will just jump in. And and so, where did you grow up? Okay. Well, Todd, thank you for inviting <laughs> me. I'm delighted to be here. I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. And so, how? So, without maybe going through all the details, but how <laughs> did you? I know that you first pursued nursing because you'd mentioned yes. that to me before. Yes, I and did. And so you you were in nursing uh as an undergrad student. Right. And so yeah. what what changed to lead you into that direction of audiology? Well, I, this was at the University of Colorado. Uh, they had a five-year baccalaureate degree in nursing, and I was into it about two and a half years, and I decided this, this isn't really what I want. I think I want to be a doctor. But as I researched that more, I thought, no, I don't think that's for me either. And I kept dabbling in different majors, and I ended up in broadcast journalism. Oh, that's I know, right. quite a, a, not really a, logical segue is it mm -hmm. um but i really loved that and but it at university of colorado you couldn't get an undergraduate degree in broadcast journalism it had hmm. to be a general speech degree Okay. And as a speech degree, you had to take different courses. So one of the courses I had to take was speech language pathology mm. that I had heard of. And I really enjoyed the course. And two weeks of that course was devoted to audiology that I mm. never heard of, mm -hmm. never heard of it ever, ever. And I immediately fell in love. Audiology had everything. It's communication. It's human beings. It's technology. It's medicine. It's talking. It's everything that appealed to me. So right. I just went from there. And fortunately, after I, I 
graduated with my uh, bachelor's with 6,800 hours, <laughs> something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I then got uh, applied to the uh, Denver University of Denver. At that time, mm -hmm. they had a program in communicative disorders, it was called speech pathology, audiology. And so I was lucky enough to get a rehab scholarship for a mm. master's degree. And at that point in time, mm -hmm. who did I get to study with? Well, Kristin Yoshinaga Itano was mm -hmm. just a new professor there, got to study with her. Um, I did externships with Doreen Pollock and Jerry I was going to say, yeah. Yeah. And so Doreen was, uh, I, I mean, what? No, I, I, I met Marion Downs and Jerry Northern. And mm -hmm. Marion was an amazing pediatric audiologist. And I learned mm -hmm. so many behavioral, because in those days it was all behavioral. We didn't right. have electrophysiological testing. So that was Marion Downs. And, right. and, and everything that she did was just amazing. And to work with her was such a privilege. And I also did an externship with Doreen Pollack. Mm -hmm. um, she was at Porter Memorial Hospital. And um, she was uh, they that when they at the university, when they put me out there as uh, for an internship, they said, well, you know, Doreen is a little kooky and she thinks these <laughs> kids can listen and um, and you don't really have to go there if you don't want to. And I said, well, you know, that sounds interesting because I'm all about mm -hmm. hearing and that's so, yeah, I'd like to do that. So I, I went out to the hospital and, and just saw Doreen in action and she's absolutely was phenomenal. And she at that time. We just kids had had body aids and we mm -hmm. were fitting a body aid with a Y cord, one body aid, you know, worn here and a Y cord. Well, Doreen had two body aids on these these little ones. We right. didn't really have many babies in those days because right. there was no mm -hmm. newborn hearings. Mary and Downs was working on that, but we didn't mm -hmm. have it quite yet. Um, and so these children were just, they were talking. She just, they were doing amazing things. And and Doreen was uh, working with this one little boy and she was saying how deaf he was. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Pollock. I, I just can't, I don't understand. How can, I, I it, he can't really be deaf. There must be some mistake there. And she said, well, why don't you take him in the sound room and test him? I mean, she was just, we, we had a very logical conversation and I said, may I do that? And she said, sure. So, and he was obviously <laughs> a very cooperative child, mm -hmm. profoundly deaf. I mean, he had like three marks, 250 hertz, 500 hertz, a thousand, maybe something at 1500, but all those 70 to 90 dB and nothing beyond that. He was talking and singing and, <laughs> and he was born that way. And right. that, that was that changed me that changed sure. everything because Christine Yoshinaga Itano at that time she came from Northwestern and they were all about mm -hmm. total communication mm -hmm. and sign language at that time and so uh, all of the 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 um oral rehab clinics in at the University of Denver were focused on sign language and these kids weren't doing anything. They weren't talking at the university and they were, and, and I, I looked, right. I, I said, Doreen, wait a minute, how come all your kids are talking and their kids aren't talking? And <laughs> so she patiently went through everything that we know now, but mm -hmm. you know, in those days we didn't talk about the brain. We didn't right. mention the brain. We talked mm -hmm. about ear training. We are right. focusing on the ear. We're, we're stimulating both ears. It was ears. We didn't talk mm -hmm. about neural tracts or the brain. I mean, we had to know it was the brain. What did we think we were doing, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. But we didn't talk about it like that.
And because and because we didn't, that's when people were saying, "Well, how can you be deaf and do listening?" That you that that's you know, it's like snake oil. You can't really right. be doing it because at that time we we didn't have the narrative and the vocabulary to really express what we were doing. We weren't thinking about the brain at that point. Um, so, but being with, with Doreen Pollock, that completely transformed everything. I, but when I was at University of Denver at that time, I tried to say, can we do more listening? I mean, they <laughs> did. The, the supervisors mm-hmm. were very good. They they were trying to be as mentoring as they could. But, but you know, as we know, you don't dabble in listening. It's a way right. of life. Mm-hmm. Listening and talking and communicating, getting that brain enriched. You don't dabble. It's it's like using a, a kind of an analogy, saying uh, I'm a I'm a vegetarian because twice a day I eat lettuce, but the rest right. of the time I eat meat. Well, that's you're not gonna no, you're not gonna get any vegetarian benefit unless right. that's a lifestyle, a lifestyle commitment, and that's what the listening brain is is a lifestyle commitment. You can't dabble mm-hmm. because the brain needs its time on task, needs a lot of practice. So if if we think we're going to teach that brain auditory knowledge and listening in 10 minutes twice a week, it, it, there's no way that's going to no happen. Way. And that's what Doreen talked about is she said, mm-hmm. this is, and the family has to do it. She said, because if they think that I can do anything in an hour a week or two hours a week, it's not going to happen. So the families are involved. It has to be about a whole life commitment. And in those days, because we didn't have newborn hearing screening, we were starting later. We weren't mm-hmm. starting in most cases till the family thought something's wrong here. Mm-hmm. My child's not talking. Or... In other cases, we could start earlier if maybe this was a second or third child in a family who had hearing loss and the parents were very aware of what to look for. But we were starting later, so we didn't have the best neuroplasticity that we can have now. And we didn't have cochlear implants. We didn't even have ear level hearing aids. But we did have, and the hearing aids were analog, but they were Mm -hmm. power monsters. I mean, you could Mm -hmm. put those two hearing aids on and um, you could get whatever little hair cells were left, man, they were stimulated and, and often and with communication interaction, it wasn't just listen to the dog bark. It was having Mm -hmm. a conversation. So Doreen Pollock and and then, of course, Helen Beebe and Dan Ling, they, they were mm-hmm. all ahead of their time. They were doing everything that we now know is what we should be doing, but they right. didn't have the actual narrative or rationale that we have right now, nor did they have the technology, mm-hmm. nor did they have the early start that we have now. So why aren't we doing it this way? <laughs> I mean, wh- why are we still having to talk about this? Like this meaning getting sound mm-hmm. of the brain, growing an auditory brain, what's possible? I just don't know why we're having the same conversations now that I had with Doreen in 1964. I, isn't that crazy? I, I think it is crazy. And, um, you know, I, as you know, I'm I'm working with kids uh, yes. now three days a week uh, at uh, Akron Children's Hospital, and yes, uh, we still have infants that are coming in um, newly identified, and parents have already been told to start using sign language from the beginning, mm-hmm. and it, it and it just drives me nuts and. Um, and then when we look at early intervention, what services are provided, it's also um, frustrating that they, most families report 
that they're getting about one hour per month mm. and uh, of early intervention. So that's 12 hours over a year of early intervention is, is enough. And, and my frustration has been, I want them to get, I want the families to get early intervention, mm-hmm. but if you're only providing one hour, then work with other community providers Yes, to make sure these families are getting, you know, holistic and you know, a comprehensive um, uh, intervention to really meet the needs of the child and the family. And there's no sort of referral outside of that system. And so it's a, it's, you know, we are still having to work on these issues. Yes. Oh, Here in Ohio, where we are, but uh, elsewhere, uh, you know, around the country, they're still facing these kinds of issues. Yep. Yep, they are. So we're still getting children uh, at age two, three, and four whose brain have not, they haven't been really stimulated. It hasn't been enriched. And, and we know how to do that. And we mm-hmm. also know that uh, up to 95% of children who are born with hearing loss are born to hearing speaking families. And we right. also know when we ask them that the vast majority of families have a listening and spoken language outcome. That's, that's what mm-hmm. they want to have happen. They, the whole family uses talking and they right. want this child to be part of the family. And maybe the family even uses another spoken language as well. And they mm-hmm. want their child to know both. And that's possible in this day and age. But we have to do what it takes. And we know what it right. takes. And we have to start early. And we can't get sidetracked because the brain is it needs a lot of redundancy. We all know in mm-hmm. learning, it's time on task that makes the difference. What do you spend most of your time doing, thinking about, engaged mm-hmm. in? How many hours of practice do you have? And we, we just we should be further ahead. We should be able to serve families who want this outcome. Um, we we know better, and it's just I I just still have contact with so many families who say, well, we, you know, we have these hearing aids, but no one said they had to, my child had to wear them all the time. And, and um, so uh, uh, besides it, they don't really need to learn anything till they start school. Right. Mm-hmm. I had one mm-hmm. family say, so people are uninformed and misinformed. It's not their fault, um, but it's our job as professionals to provide information so the families can make informed decisions. And so they know the mm-hmm. consequences of wearing technology or not wearing technology, the consequences of speaking with their child and not speaking, Many families simply don't know. I mean, if they, if we're only, if we're so, how can I say it? If, if we as professionals display such a lack of seriousness that we only need to see you an hour a month, that's how unserious, that's how frivolous this whole thing is, that you're mm-hmm. only worth an hour a month of my time to work with you. How can we expect the parents to be serious about this? How can we expect them to pick up the ball and say, yes, this is a really serious thing. I'm all in about my child's brain. I'm all in. Um, and you're all in one hour mm-hmm. a month. Uh, what what message does that send to families? It sends the message of doesn't matter. Right. We're not serious about this. That's right. And, and, and it, it, it <laughs> I'm stuttering. I don't mean to. Yeah. But you know, no, it's, it's, I know. It's, <laughs> you know, it's it just boggles the mind of, mm-hmm. of of trying to 
figure out the rationale. I think the the biggest, well, one thing that keeps being brought up in, in this situation is the lack of funding and the and the yeah. cuts to, you know, uh, early intervention programs at state level and all of that. Um, but I think we, we still, even with the lack of funding, we could have a better system. Mm-hmm. We could have, in my opinion, we could have real uh, care coordination. Yes. Where, where those families are connected to, you know, community providers who, who are specialized maybe in providing what the parents want. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that they get cut off from early intervention. They work with early intervention and early intervention then coordinates the care and helps, you know, make sure everyone's on the same page and everyone's talking to each other. I don't see any of that being done the way I think it should be done. So. Yes, I completely agree. I think that if families are lucky enough to be living where there is a center of excellence, where you have everything in one spot, I'm thinking of something mm-hmm. like Hearts for Hearing in Oklahoma right. City, where mm-hmm. you have everything from surgery to intervention, where everything happens at this center. So the coordination occurs in one place. But as Mm -hmm. you say, Todd, there's no reason why we couldn't have virtual coordination. Like you say, we couldn't have um, the early interventionist, even though the interventionist isn't in the same building as you are, or the Mm -hmm. implant center is, uh, they're in a different place, they can still coordinate um, and not have the parent have to figure out everything on their own. Because what happens is parents who have a lot of social capital who typically Mm -hmm. are higher socioeconomic and who um, know how to look around for services, know how to explore what's possible, know how to really advocate, they are more likely to get the early services they need, having earlier cochlear implantation. So mm-hmm. so who really gets left behind? It's our more vulnerable families, the families mm-hmm. who completely depend on the system to provide coordinated care for them. They're the ones that get right. left behind. I mean, talk about more and more unfairness um, mm-hmm. to families. I agree. And there's, there's you know... Parents don't know what they don't know. Right. <laughs> That's How what it comes down they? to. Yes. You know, and so as, as you've said, most of them have never experienced hearing loss before. Mm-hmm. And and now they have this child and they don't have the resources to, you know, figure out the that next step. And they mm-hmm. get, you know, picked up by early intervention and they think, well, this is what the right. experts are telling me. Exactly. Why wouldn't and, they? Right. So yeah, it is frustrating. And I yes. think we'll continue to have those issues unless we do, you know, deal with them very directly. And hopefully we'll be able to do that. Um, I wanted to ask, so <laughs> you you, you were with Doreen and really saw what was possible uh, yes. from a very early uh, point in your career and, yes. and led you and sort of that reinforced your, your focus on pediatric audiology. Definitely. Yes. And so how did you, so from there, what happened? Where did you go? So then I did uh, 
Doreen had summer program that she mm-hmm. would offer at that time. So I did take a more training from her. And then when I graduated from uh, the University of Denver with my master's, I was hired at Texas Tech University mm-hmm. in Lubbock, Texas, uh, as a clinical supervisor. And at that time, Gary Nix, um, who mm-hmm. was uh, a teacher of the deaf, in those days it was oral, right? We didn't talk right. auditory verbal because we didn't really, they used a lot of lip reading. So, but he was uh, a I don't know if he was chair at that point, but I think he was. And I said, I, I wanted to uh, do oral rehab, but I want to do, I want to do an orthopedics. And that time, that's what Doreen mm-hmm. called it. I want to do an orthopedic approach. And I'm, I'm not an expert, but I have had some training and I'd like to bring Doreen in to do some, a talk, which she did. But you know, she's, she was so brave because when she went mm-hmm. in to do talks, she didn't have people rising to their feet and, and, and giving her a standing ovation. I mean, right. she had to talk through all of this cynicism and, but she did it. She she mm-hmm. just did it. So I did start a clinic, um, but I, I was very novice at it. But we we did make some progress. And then at the time, see, I, I, got, I was divorced when I was at the University of Denver. And then I met uh, my current husband, Pete, at Texas Tech. And I was there three years. And then I decided I needed a, I wanted a doctorate. And they didn't offer that at Texas Tech. So applied and, and got accepted at Kent State University. And mm-hmm. Joe Millen was there as an audiologist. Ken Berger, who was, they were mm-hmm. really two big people um, who right. did a lot with oral rehab and hearing aids at that time. And then Don Gans, who did, he was really building an electrophysiological laboratory. So mm-hmm. once again, I was in just such a great place to learn so much. And at Kent State, they let me do uh what I wanted to do, orthopedics, and um, met quite a few families that way, and then graduated with my PhD, and then was hired at the University of Akron. And that's where I met Denise Ray, and we became right. partners. She's a speech pathologist. But what really sealed the deal for me was the um, chairman at the University of Akron at that point was George Davis. And for whatever reason, that department, there was actually money for, for professional development at that time. I know it's hard to believe since there isn't. <laughs> it's very it hard now. to believe. But, but there was. So, mm-hmm. um, I told George, uh, Denise and I, I said, I, I, I really want to do this auditory stuff, but I need, I need more training. So he sent me to a whole summer thing with Dan Ling at McGill University. Wow. So I did some training with other professionals at McGill University. And then uh, he sent me to work with a uh, Helen Beebe. I went with um, I, I, you know, Stacy Lim. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I had, I met her when she was a baby. I tested her at Kent State, right. and then when she and her family went for a week to um, Helen Beebe's clinic, uh, George Davis said I could go with them and spend the week with them. So I had again, I learned as much as they learned more, I think, mm-hmm. about how to continue. Meanwhile, we still didn't have newborn hearing screening and we still didn't have cochlear implants. So this right. was really intense. This meaning to develop an auditory brain, still not talking about the brain, but to develop that brain was really a huge commitment. There wasn't, there was no easy listening involved for children. And mm-hmm. you had to focus. So that's where you got to really listen. You have mm-hmm. to really focus. Use all of your energy, all your cognitive reserves, everything that you've got, every neuron. You need to focus on auditory input to that brain. 
And so there were people who could do that, families. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a big decision that families made. Um, but these were families who said, listen, if my child can listen and talk, if if they can, because that's what my family does, I want this child to be part of my community, my family. Um, yeah, I'm going to go for it. I'm, I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do. This is what, who our family is now. We are like the idea of vegetarians. We are 100% <laughs> in, 100%, right. no dabbling. And it's and a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So so I was just in the right place to get wonderful training. And anytime I wanted to go somewhere, George Davis said I could. And then after a while, he told Denise and I, okay, now you can still go, but now you've got to present papers. Now you've got to, now you've got <laughs> mm-hmm. to share. What have you right. learned and what are you doing in your clinic? And Denise and I really combined audiology. We did great audiology with these children mm-hmm. and intervention. And we really had a great cooperative clinic. We did co-therapy before anyone really talked about it. Mm-hmm. And so then we started talking about that. Still not about the brain, not really. We brain words started creeping in. You know, Frank mm-hmm. Musiak, who right. is uh, mm-hmm. with auditory processing, people who did auditory processing were using the brain word, but somehow we mm-hmm. didn't really take that narrative into a counseling format or right. into really a description of what we were doing. And then time goes on, you know, and we we now we're starting to get newborn hearing screening. We're getting better hearing aids. Now we're getting some digital. Oh, and now in 1990, along comes a cochlear implant. Mm-hmm. And so things were changing. This is I'm almost I'm 30 years into the career by now, practically. So, mm-hmm. I mean, the changes when I started, we didn't even have admittance testing. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's the changes that have occurred have just been, I I couldn't have, I never, ever would have even predicted them. If someone asked me in 1964, so how do you think it's going to look in 2023 (laughs) uh, or 2020 or 1990? I I couldn't have even begun to think about it. So it's, we're just in an made amazing progress. And I want to see every single child have the opportunity for that progress. To have happen what we know can happen, to not be left behind. Because uh, when they're left behind, it's not the child's fault. It's the system's fault because we exactly. need a whole system to develop this brain. We need to know about the brain. I, ho- I wrote a whole thing called the logic chain that I published mm-hmm. on hearing first. Um, that we need the system of, of getting that it's about the brain. And then technology is a way to get through the doorway to the brain. And it's got to use that technology. And then we need to have the parents really focused and involved because they're the child's first teacher. Then we need a, a listening and spoken language, auditory, verbal therapist to work with the family, not only spoken language, but social development, literacy development. Mm -hmm. Um, We can create this hearing brain. This child can develop age-appropriate skills or skills to the level that's available to them given their capacity. But we, we have to do what it takes early, 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 and often and intentional with a science base and a desired outcome base. I don't want to see anyone left behind. There's no excuse for that in this day and age. I would agree 100%. And unfortunately, we're still, like we talked about earlier, yes. we're still struggling with this, uh, depending on the state and and where you live, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, if even here in Ohio, if you're 
you know, maybe in Akron, you have a little bit more available to you. But if you're in a more rural areas, you know, you just may not have anyone. You may not That's have right. a pediatric audiologist nearby. You may not have, you know, we talked about early intervention, but we may not have access to a specialized person who can deliver these services. So we, we have right. to continue I to know. do more. And, and we, now we do have, because you're so involved in teletherapy, we really can reach people. I mean, we can. Mm -hmm. We have the mechanism. It isn't, I, I agree, it's not the same as being in the same room as someone, but but you can really do, you know better mm -hmm. than I, how much we can accomplish in teletherapy. Um, but we need to do it in the way that we can accomplish that it's all about the family and right. our us as guide guides and coaches and and not as um we're we're not the ones who do the intervention it really is the family and how do we provide that and teletherapy mm -hmm. and of course the big thing is where's that pediatric audiologist to make sure these hearing aids fit and the implants are programmed well and that they fit well and right. and that their the programs aren't corrupted and and um now there there can be remote uh, management of hearing aids mm -hmm. and pro remote programming of implants but that's still a system that has to be put in place. And there right. have to be professionals who oversee that system and mm -hmm. make sure that it works. And it, it can't be up to the family to develop their own system and, and find their own network of professionals and figure out what it is that they need. Uh, it's not fair to them. Um, we need mm -hmm. to be doing that, but we don't really have... A mechanism. I mean, I don't know how we would get a mechanism. Um, I don't know how we would, who could, who would be in charge? Like, who's the case manager? Who would be in charge? Who puts together a system for a family? Right. It's, oh. yeah, it gets to be problematic. You know, yes. I, you know, back, back, you know, uh, earlier, uh, what, 10, 20 years ago, uh, we had what was the regional, the RIPs, the regional yes. hearing uh, centers around the around the state that were there to provide, I guess, more direct access to some of these services and some of that coordination. Yes. But of course, we we lost all those through state cuts and and funding, and so we end up with what we have now. So yeah, it you know if it's not early intervention through some case coordination, I don't know how it can be done on a statewide basis. I think it, right. it comes back to centers and, and like Akron Children's, what we're trying to do there and, and uh, maybe University Hospital up in Cleveland and, and Nationwide Children's, and, you know, others around the, the state that are doing, trying to do good work and, and meet yes. the needs of families. But there's still families that are falling through the cracks and, Many. We, yeah, we still get families that come in and children are, you know, three, four years old. You know, they're like, this is the first time anyone has ever talked to me about this or that or listening and spoken language or cochlear implants, you know, and the child is now three, four years into this. And look at all that time, you know, that was missed. Yes. Uh, and it's it's frustrating that we're still seeing those kinds of families today. It is frustrating. It very is. It is because it might as well be 1952 if we're not seeing mm -hmm. children till they're three or four. It might as well not be. And and also, as you mentioned, there are different centers around the state who who are doing their best with people right. in their catchment areas. But right. but that's not a program. 
that just right. means are you lucky enough to be near Nationwide or near Akron or right. are, are you or Cleveland Clinic? Are you lucky enough to be there or are you out somewhere else? And um, and because there's no general, it just doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me how we haven't uh, had any sort of, I know I keep going over and over it, mm-hmm. I guess because as I go over it, I try to figure out how we could have a statewide central system, but as you say, that that takes thought, it takes energy, it takes money. And I think the cost effectiveness of, of doing things right early on, there have been lots of studies that show mm-hmm. that you save so much money because it's you pay now or you pay forever. In other That's words, right. it's paying now early intervention to get this brain developed or forever to support this poor brain that never mm-hmm. had an opportunity to develop. And so the capacity in that child was not really engaged when it could have been. So now there's going to be support services paid for throughout the lifetime versus if we really did our job right in these early years, then we would have a contributing citizen with choices and how they wanted to be in the community. And there are many right. studies that that point that out, but somehow that message hasn't gotten through, has it? It hasn't. It, it really hasn't. And uh, yeah, I think uh, with the state system, the way it is and the politics that we have now in the state and in the country for for that matter, Get, you know, getting these things done is, is I think, very hard to do and almost yeah. impossible. Um, but doesn't mean we don't stop. I mean, we, we certainly shouldn't stop advocating and making sure people understand what we what we could be doing or what we should be doing and still have those very high standards that we're trying to meet. Yes. I mean, we do have the EDI programs, early hearing sure. detection and intervention. We do have that, and that is funded federally through the mm-hmm. states. Um, and But one could argue that, and even those who work in those programs could, that that there needs to be more support, that they, mm-hmm. they could be doing more and coordinate more with more support. So it is something. We do have right. the screening. Um, we're pretty good at doing the screening, right? But then there's that follow-up part of actual follow-up and now now that we know there's a doorway problem now are we going to get a testing now are we going to get hearing aids fit now are we going to get really in the intervention that that family needs to get the outcome that they want um Mm -hmm. so once again it's the coordination um even though we do have one piece of that but the overall coordination doesn't seem to be there does it no no and and that's something that we can Maybe talk to the our Eddie colleagues and see what can be done. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe there is something there on a maybe state by state basis. Yeah. And it is. I think part of, of what happens in this country is everything is state by state. Even mm-hmm. if there's federal monies, they flow through the state for management of those monies. And and so each state has, I guess, uh, not infinite discretion, but has discretion mm-hmm. about how their various programs are operated and implemented. Um, so there isn't a national program. There isn't, there's right. not even a national database, to my knowledge. Not a national one, no. Not, no, not that there's I know not of. a national database. I, so I, the CDC was track? collecting, yeah, they were collecting some information on us, but they were still doing it state by state. I think so. Um, with Eddie, so. I don't know. That is, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not aware of a national database that's really looking at this. Right. They um, can really identify what's happening and, and, uh, and a national database is only as good as people reporting into it. 
right? So how right. effective are is, is this are the state's databases that they are sharing with national if indeed that's even happening? Right, um, exactly. So differences are like, for example, in Australia, where where their programs are top down. You don't mm-hmm. have each individual state kind of making up what what they would feel is appropriate for their particular state. So so you have national data. You you have of course even though it's a huge country, a huge continent, they mm-hmm. a huge island, what we call right. it, but that they don't really they don't have very many people comparatively. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easier it meaning their programs might be easier to manage and certainly I'm not an expert in their program, but just the idea of when you have a unified model with a right. unified protocol that every child gets the same thing, the same testing, mm-hmm. the same protocols, the same technology, the same intervention, um, the same timeline. And if you have those protocols, then you have a better chance of, of not missing children and of disadvantaged children also getting what they need. But in in our country, we don't have unified. I mean, we have suggested protocols from AAA and ASHA. Mm -hmm. Um, We do have protocols, but there's no legal protocols. There's, and, and even within states, I, 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 my, I imagine that different hospitals and different audiologists may implement different testing and fitting protocols. That's right. That's right. Um, so I've always thought, you know, it's great to have live in a country, 50 states, uh, all that, but then you have 50 different ways of doing things and 50 mm-hmm. different ways of, or, or more, um, depending on the state, maybe even right. more than 50 different ways of, of uh, like you're saying, different protocols and different, you know, people who are doing their own thing and not really following the protocols the way they should be. That's right. So, and I, I, I do want to say, I'm not implying that that other people don't care that, that they're not. Sure. I mean, I know that people who work with children really care about that because it's not easy mm-hmm. to work with children. It's a, sure. it's an art as well as a science. And, and so whether pediatric audiologists or early interventionists, I, I know that it takes a great deal of passion and energy to do that. And I, I just want all of, all of the energy and passion to go for something, to really right. be organized, to have, to lead into a system that can really work for families and, and all families and not just those who are smart enough or lucky enough mm-hmm. um, or, you know, to be in the right place at the right time to to mm-hmm. li- to meet up with a, a professional who really can guide them. But for mm-hmm. all families to have opportunities so that our um, professionals who are just so uh, so engaged in providing services can be really impactful with these services because i i've spoken with a lot of many professionals who really feel like they're out there on their own mm-hmm. that they're they're just kind of hanging out there um doing right. their very best for family but there's really no ties with right. other team members not even a, a team really just kind of loosely loosely organized people who the, right. pa- the parents the parents seem to be the ones who have to pull it together and if a parent can pull it together they might get a pretty good team but if they can't right. then they're either lucky or they're not lucky i think i agree i agree we have to we have to do more to solve these problems and yes. luckily we have the eddie conference coming up soon so yes uh, and cincinnati as a matter of fact mm-hmm. as we record this so um, that'll be exciting, kind of uh, nearby. 
I, I wanted to I wanted to ask you something that because uh, you you are a unique person in that you had a chance uh, to to learn from Doreen Pollock, Helen Beebe, and Daniel Lane. Yes. So uh, three sort of pioneers, uh, people who are doing the things that we are doing, hopefully doing now. Uh, but if when I say one of their names, what what sort of first comes to your mind? So when you think of Doreen Pollock in that time you have with her, what was what first comes to your mind about how she did things? Oh, compassionate, courageous, um, tenacity, um, resilient, resourceful, um, and 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 calm. She she could people could literally in her face say you're crazy you don't know what you're doing this doesn't work and she would be very calm and very logical and very compassionate with trying to explain to them why she's doing what she's doing and why she's getting the outcome she's getting um and she just um was she just never gave up didn't give up just kept going awesome what about uh, um helen Beebe? Well, also very similar. Um, mm-hmm. Helen is was also, uh, she even spoke more scientifically, although we didn't talk about the brain so much. Um, mm-hmm. But Helen was, she had a very specific way. Well, we all, they all did. You had to be specific about what you were doing because we were not dealing with this great technology and early intervention. Um, but she also was very clear about this is what I'm doing and this is why. It's kind of like if you want to bake my cake, these are the ingredients. Now you can bake mm-hmm. any cake you want, but if you want it to turn out like my cake turns out, this mm-hmm. is how you have these are the ingredients. This is what it takes. And she was very clear about that and very committed and very strong in in her beliefs because she did know what she was doing. She did from the very beginning. Well, I I never had a chance to meet Helen Beebe. I did meet Doreen before she passed away. But I did see someone had posted an, an article about Helen when she was very young and was in her 20s and wore pants to court. Did you see this article? Yeah, yeah. It was, and I, the, the yeah. judge took issue with a woman wearing pants and kicked her out and, and fined her, you know, and she... She didn't back down. She kept wearing pants. Oh yeah, no, she she not none of Doreen or Dan <laughs> or or Helen. They never backed down ever. They kindly and patiently and consistently, consistently did what they did and explained what they did. Never backing down. Never saying, "Well, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe you can't." You know, no, never. They so I think that was the thing. They never doubted what they were doing. They mm-hmm. didn't go into working with a family or a child thinking, well, you know, maybe it'll work, maybe it won't work, I don't know, maybe. Never. There was Mm -hmm. no doubt in their minds. They knew that, and again, we didn't talk about if you get to the brain, maybe that's Mm -hmm. what we were all thinking, but they knew if we did this, if we wore these powerful hearing aids, if we had these conversations, if we had the practice and the repetition, if the families were involved, that child was going to listen and talk. No doubt. Right. There was no, and no one, they never said to the parent, well, if this doesn't work or this might not, no, that was never a conversation, which was so interesting because there would be a lot of reasons to doubt in those at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They never did. But even now, even nowadays, I hear people say, you know, maybe this won't, or maybe it won't work. Maybe you shouldn't right. be doing it. But, but, you know, as soon as you go in with doubts, then there will mm-hmm. be doubts. 
If you go right. in with, hey, if you do the A, B, C, and D, you're going to have my cake. It, you're, it, it's going to mm-hmm. work. Th- this, no doubt. There is not a doubt in my mind. And that's actually how I kind of approach it. If we do the system, if we do what we know is in mm-hmm. place, if there, as long as there's an auditory nerve and a brain, then we can build that brain to the capacity of that child if we do what it takes or when we do what it takes. When we miss an, an, an ingredient, it, it's not going to turn out. That's right. Very good. Well, I want to be cognizant of your time and, ah, and not uh, take too much more. So I, I want to thank you, Carol, again, for, for being with me on the podcast. And, and uh, hopefully when we can get some of these issues solved, I want you to come back and we'll, we'll rehash some of this stuff again. Uh, and, uh, but hopefully then we'll have some problems solved and we won't be so upset. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great to come back and say, well, we have a system now and That's here's right. our system and we're not leaving our vulnerable children behind. Everyone gets That's the right. same chance. Everyone gets the same chance. I really want to come back on when that's possible. <laughs> sure. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. Well, thank you, Todd. Thanks. Thank you. I want to thank Carol for joining us on the podcast. And I just have to state that she has been someone that I have admired for a very long time, and someone that really influenced me in terms of naming this podcast, The Listening Brain. Kind of goes back to her work and her advocacy on the listening brain, the hearing brain, and it's all about the brain. So in terms of what we're trying to do with children with hearing loss is grow that listening brain. So The other thing that I love about Carol is that she's just as passionate now at this point uh, in her career as she was the first time I met her. And uh, she just exudes that passion for what she believes in and what she knows to be true, that these kids can be successful and we need to do more to make sure that all children have those opportunities to be successful. So thanks again, Carol, for being such an inspiration to so many of us. And keep preaching what you're preaching. Keep doing what you're doing. And uh, best of luck with everything. And that wraps up another episode of this podcast of The Listening Brain. I will be back in two weeks with a new episode. And please look for me then. And we have more guests already lined up. So I'm really, really trying to get on a a better schedule with the listening brain. I'm trying to have this uh, a new episode every two weeks. And I think I'm going to be able to do that. So I keep saying that and and I fall down on that pledge and I apologize. But some of it is my fault. Some of it is uh, issues that came up with some scheduled guests that uh, had to delay those interviews, and uh, and so it's been a little bit of, a little bit of a mix in terms of the reasons why. But my pledge is to have an episode every two weeks, and if you know someone that you'd like to uh, see or hear on this episode or on this podcast, please let me know. Just shoot me an email at Todd, T-O-D-D, at 
3cdigitalmedianetwork.com. And I'll try to get them on. So, until next time, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.